guardian.co.uk. This is Guardian Daily. Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 17th of March. You have blood splattered on walls, on curtains, instruments with mould growing in them, and on more than one occasion commodes soiled, presumably, by human excrement. Filthy hospitals are warned to improve or face closure. Also today, after violent clashes in East Jerusalem and the cancellation of a visit to Israel by America's Middle East envoy, Jonathan Friedland looks at Obama's new hardline approach with Israel. You have now the situation where Israel's own ambassador to Washington saying that the relations between the two countries are at their worst for 35 years, I think maybe even longer. Relief as a five-year-old British boy kidnapped in Pakistan is released by his abductors. What everyone is saying, including his grandmother, who's seen him, that he, he is perfectly fine as far as far as you know, harmed. Also in today's podcast... Ten albums in seven years. How much Michael Jackson does the world need? It's got all it needs already, hasn't it? Our music critic Alexis Petridis on what's been hailed as the biggest record deal in history. A $200 million deal between Sony and the estate of Michael Jackson. Oh, a guillotine goes on display for the first time since France abolished the death penalty almost 30 years ago. And we look at South Africa's preparations for the World Cup, which it's hosting this summer, the first time an African nation has staged the tournament. First, our top story. One in four health trusts have failed to meet standards over hospital infections. And five have received warnings under the Care Quality Commission's tough new regulatory regime. Randeep Ramesh, The Guardian's social affairs editor, has seen the Commission's report. What they found was a number of instances where hospital trusts had failed in terms of keeping their wards clean. You have blood splattered on walls, on curtains instruments with mould growing in them and on more than one occasion commodes uh, soiled presumably by human excrement um, which hadn't been cleaned. Funnily enough some of the inspectors actually went into certain wards where they've been told in one hospital they've been told that just patients were just about to come in could they hurry up uh, they turned on the taps and brown water flushed out. So it was a, it was a <laughs> the picture was was fairly patchy for the health service. There are an awful lot of trusts, and obviously most of them were okay, but a quarter of them weren't, and a quarter of uh, 167 health trusts is is more than 40 trusts, so quite a few covering all sorts of disciplines from the very high-profile Children's Holy Hospital in, um, in Liverpool all the way down to ambulance trusts in Essex. Now, what kind of action could the Care Quality Commission take? What can they do about this? Well, the Care Quality Commission has often been criticised for simply being a watchdog that's all bark and no bite. And what's really happening is that it's going to not just snarl but snap. It's been given a new range of enforcement powers, and this was really a testbed of those powers. What had happened was last year the government had decided enough's enough. The Commission really isn't kind of doing much by naming and shaming hospitals because it couldn't really say anything apart from, you know, you're not doing too well. And it gave them a range of powers which starts with a warning, can lead to prosecution and can eventually lead to a fine of £50,000 or, in the worst case, closing down a hospital. Now, that's that's a fairly serious sanction, but these new powers are now available and they will be made part of the registration process. So all... 390-odd health trusts in Britain will forfeit their registration if they're in breach of any of the 
20-odd standards that they're supposed to meet. Randeep Ramesh, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash society. There have been violent clashes in East Jerusalem. Hamas staged what it described as a day of rage in protest at Israel's reopening of a synagogue in Jerusalem's old city. Meanwhile, the US envoy to the Middle East, George Mitchell, has postponed a visit to Israel in another sign of the Obama administration's anger at Israel's announcement last week during a visit by the US Vice President Joe Biden that 1,600 Jewish homes would be built in occupied East Jerusalem. I asked our columnist Jonathan Freeland whether, as Barack Obama gets tough with the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, he'll face a backlash at home. Yes, it's a, it's a high-risk game he's playing. I mean, risky in a couple of ways. The first is that if, and it's a big if, if he does want to undermine Netanyahu in some way, and there is a view that maybe some in the administration would quite prefer to deal with a different Israeli leader altogether, that you could have the reverse effect and public opinion might rally around uh, a besieged Israeli prime minister. I think that's unlikely, mainly because the one thing that is held most dear by Israeli public opinion is the relationship with the United States. And most Israelis in the past have been ready to throw leaders overboard if they get on the wrong side of an American president. It's that important. But there is a second danger, which is, as you've indicated, at home. Uh, And there is a very, very vocal pro-Israel lobby uh, who don't like an American president roughing up uh, an Israeli prime minister, again, in public. One thing to do it in private. Don't like it in public. Now, so far, those criticisms have come from the right of the pro-Israel lobby. APAC is a bipartisan group. Uh, APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, the biggest uh, pro-Israel lobby. Uh, there are Democrats and Republicans in there. And so far, it is mainly Republicans, not exclusively, who've been attacking Obama for daring to take on uh, and slam Israel in, in so forthrightly. If more Democrats... People from Obama's own party peel off and begin to criticise him. I think that is a pressure. Uh, And so he's playing a high-stakes game. I think he's hoping he's going to repeat what Bill Clinton did in 1996 when he too got into a standoff with the then Prime Minister, one Bibi Netanyahu, the same guy, and American Jewish opinion and American pro-Israel opinion, and they're not the same thing, sided actually with Clinton against Netanyahu uh, for all kinds of reasons then. I think Obama is hoping that a similar dynamic may happen this time, mainly because the offence, if you like, of Israel was so egregious in this case. I mean, even people who are quite in favour of settlements do agree that it's inept and just rude, really, to do that when you are being visited by a representative of an administration which, yes, is your ally, but has told you we don't want any more of these settlements. So the, the, just the crudeness of the insult, I think, has made Obama think he's on strong ground here. People will agree with him in uh, carpeting and scolding Israel, and he's going to try and ride this moment to get some advantage and some progress in what is, after all, what this whole thing is about, the peace process with the Palestinians, and he's trying to seize the moment. And what kind of tools will Obama deploy now to get the Israelis to engage in um, substantive talks with the Palestinians? Well, we have a clue in the phone call, very unusual phone call to his home on Friday night that Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, made to Netanyahu, apparently was caught by surprise, picked up the phone and there was Hillary on the end of it. 43-minute long phone call. She made three demands. She said, I want the cancellation of the housing expansion you've announced. I want some kind of gesture, confidence, confidence-building measure to the Palestinians. That probably would be in the form of releasing Palestinian prisoners. And third, I want these peace talks, which before 
before were frankly going to be quite procedural to now be about substance and to be about the core issues, you know, the difficult issues, borders, refugees, status of Jerusalem itself. Those are the tools that Americans have decided to put pressure on in those three areas and to get some kind of concession. There's risks associated with all of those um, because the, some, the first demand in particular may just simply be impossible for Netanyahu if he's going to keep his coalition together. Uh, and so then you're back into that other question of whether you do want to drive him out of power. The last time this was done successfully was nearly 20 years ago with George Bush's father, the first George Bush and his Secretary of State, James Baker. They did put pressure on Israel. They did, in the end, actually get the sitting Prime Minister out. Yitzhak Shamir then lost power and was replaced. But their tool was very effective. It was loan guarantees, underwriting $10 billion worth of guaranteed loans to Israel. And it was that they threatened to withhold if settlement building carried on. Uh, that was a very clever tool because it was financial rather than really getting to Israel's core. Uh, and I think if Obama can think of something like that, uh, that will be very effective. But at the moment, he's got these three demands. And just the sight of, uh, of America uh, being so strong and demanding of Israel is itself so powerful. And is sending a big message around the region where people are not used to seeing America talk this way to its uh, most uh, dependable, usually, ally. My name's John Dennis, you're listening to Guardian Daily. Still to come, guillotines and footballs. But first, the estate of the late Michael Jackson has struck a $200 million deal with Sony. It'll mean 10 albums over seven years. Alexis Petridis, the Guardian's music critic, gives his reaction. I believe only one of them is um, going to be of unreleased material, which seems fairly remarkable. I mean, 10 albums in seven years, essentially repackaging a pretty familiar back catalogue. It does seem an enormous amount. I mean, there are certain artists whose greatest hits get repackaged over and over and over and over again. Whether that bolsters their legacy or it actually sort of detracts a little bit from it, I think is a moot point. Although, um, you know, we've just had this incredible example of Jimi Hendrix, who's been dead for 40 years, and there's an album released last week of previously unissued material, which apparently is very good. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, that's come as quite a surprise, because, you know, the Hendrix um, sort of unreleased catalogue has been plundered fairly thoroughly. And, yeah, to, to sort of still turn up something exciting and interesting from the vaults in that way, you know, 40 years on, I think that might be the exception. I was thinking of another one, actually, Johnny Cash as well, because he's had these series of uh, American recordings yeah, albums. but I think that sort of demonstrates the, uh, the sort of diminishing return setting in a little bit, because the last two patently weren't as good as the, uh, as the previous ones, you know. And there are sort of other artists you can look at and say, well, the legacy has in one way or another been... I don't know whether it's been trampled on a bit, but someone like Tupac... Tupac Shakur, the rapper, who's released more albums since he died, more albums of new material since he died than he did when he was alive, you know. Um, there comes a point, I think, where people just have enough of it, where people's appetite is satiated. I mean, I suppose the, the trouble is it's such big business. I mean, we've had apparently 31 million Michael Jackson albums sold since June when he died. What about Elvis? Because I mean, he's someone who did record an enormous mm. amount. But, I mean, a bit of a mixed picture there, really, isn't it? Because yeah. some of it's quite good and some of it you think, oh, it's not this album again. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there, there, there are sort of, you know, certain artists who... I guess you reach just a level of popularity whereby it is thought that 
your back catalogue is infinitely exploitable. And there are obsessive fans out there, and obviously the bigger an artist is, the, the greater the number of obsessive fans who will literally buy anything is. But, I mean, there's a lot been a lot of argument, I think, among the Elvis Presley fan base about how his legacy has been dealt with and about kind of remixing, not in the dance sense, I don't mean that track a little less conversation, but sort of remastering and remixing and changing the sound of the records and doing that kind of thing, and whether that constitutes updating Elvis for a new audience or, or painting a moustache on the main release or sort of thing. Guardian Daily, news and reports from around the world. A five-year-old British boy who was kidnapped in Pakistan nearly two weeks ago has been found safe and well. Sahil Saeed was found wandering in a field yesterday after being released unharmed. In a moment, we'll hear how his family in Oldham in Greater Manchester have reacted. But first, Saeed Shah, the Guardian's correspondent in Islamabad, describes how the boy was discovered. Well, uh, basically, uh, a family member, his uncle, um, Rizwan received a phone call uh, about 8 a.m. Tuesday morning and uh, was told that the boy could be found in the village, which was 30, 40 kilometers away. And um, let's see, he went with police to the scene and uh, there was the boy, Sahil. And uh, he apparently had been taken in by some local villagers who saw him sort of wandering around lost. So, I mean, the kidnappers must have basically just dumped him in this village. Do we know whether a ransom was paid? We don't know whether a ransom was paid. It is suspected that a ransom may have been paid. In fact, the uh, the provincial law minister has stated on the court uh, that a ransom was paid. And he has actually claimed that a ransom was paid in some other country, not in Pakistan. There are all sorts of reports that Spain or even the United Kingdom was involved uh, somehow. The police uh, is uh, refusing to comment on the Pakistani police, that is, uh, on whether ransom was paid. So it is suspected, but we don't know yet. Now, just remind us, um, Saeed, what happened to this five-year-old boy? Well, he's, he's been uh, missing for 13 days in, in the hands of a, a what seems like a professional kidnap gang. There were apparently few leads in this case to go on. Certainly police gave the impression that they didn't really have much to work on. They hadn't arrested anyone involved uh, in the kidnap gang uh, until now. So we've, we've known very little of, of what's happened to, to this boy, but it seems, from what everyone is saying, including his grandmother, who's seen him, that he, he is perfectly fine as far as, far as you know, he hasn't been harmed. He's only five years old. He doesn't seem to, he doesn't seem to know what has happened to him. Um, what about allegations that a family member was involved in the boy's kidnapping? Well, these allegations have, have dogged the family, really, since the start of this case. And the Pakistani interior minister, Rahman Malik, has, uh, has, has stated that uh, someone close to the family was involved. The family has always denied this, pretty angrily, actually. So we haven't got to the bottom of that. Certainly no one in the family has been arrested so far. Saeed Shah in Islamabad. Now, what's been the reaction of Sahil's family in Oldham? Martin Wainwright's our northern editor. They're absolutely um, overjoyed, but the atmosphere at the house was, uh, you know, it was all kind of beams, smiles. His mum, Akila Nakash, you know, was just so thrilled. And she said briefly that um, what made her happiest was that he, he just, when she spoke to him on the phone, Sahil, he just reacted like a little boy, you know, he very quickly sort of said, how are my sisters? How are you? And um, I've got these fantastic toys. <laughs> because, you know, police in Pakistan and the people at the British High Commission have given him toys. And, and um, I think that's his main preoccupation, according to his mum. 
It's been a terrible ordeal for the family, though, hasn't it? Well, it's hard to imagine yourself in a similar situation, but, you know, they, they've clutched at every straw. One, one of the aunties, um, I think auntie is used as a kind of generic term in the way that used to happen in England more, you know, not meaning literally an auntie, but a sort of older family friend. They all have the honorary title of auntie and uncle. And one of the aunties said, hopes have been raised, hopes have been dashed, hopes have been raised. And so when Nakila uh, Nakash got the call, her first reaction was, you know, I just can't believe it's true. And she said she was gobsmacked. And, and it just took time for Sahil's little voice to sort of convince her that, yes, you know, it is my boy. What about the wider community in Oldham? Well, that's been one of the best parts of this affair because, you know, there has been trouble there, just like there has in a lot of northern cities with communities rubbing up against one another. But on this occasion, you know, because it's a little sweet little boy, everyone's rallied round and the sense of kind of euphoria was general and it was particularly, it was lovely at Rushcroft School where Sahil is a pupil and they had an assembly. Jane Sheridan, the head, had this rather lovely metaphor. You know, when he first disappeared, uh, or rather was, was taken, um, they, they had to say something to the children because they were saying, you know, where, where is Sahil? And of course, people picked it up from the news. And she, was, she said then, you know, we've, we've lost one of our stars, but she told them somewhere he'll be shining so uh, in, in a sort of, um, you know, good coming out of bad, um, this is a rather striking example of that. One of the last guillotines in France has been put on display for the first time since the country abolished the death penalty in 1981. Lizzie Davis, our Paris correspondent, went to have a look. It's very tall, about 14 foot high. You can make out the blade behind the veil which was used traditionally to hide uh, what was going on in the guillotine from the public. Um, And there's a kind of wooden platform underneath with a very clear uh, circular hole for where obviously the neck was meant to sit. So it's pretty chilling. It It does sound pretty terrifying. Why Why is it now being put on public display? Well, when he succeeded in making the uh, death penalty a thing of the past, a man called Robert Badinter, who was then Justice Minister under François Mitterrand, said that, right, we need to put these guillotines away or whatever guillotines were remaining, and they shouldn't be put on public display for a quarter of a century because, because there was so much controversy around the decision to abolish it. Um, obviously, those 25 years have now passed, much more than 25 years, and he decided that as part of an exhibition into crime and punishment and criminal justice, um, that it would be a brilliant idea to put the guillotine in the exhibition among works of art devoted to looking at themes such as retribution, rehabilitation, that kind of thing. So when were guillotines last used in France? The death penalty was abolished in 81, but the last known execution was 1977. By a, yeah, by a guillotine. Well, guillotine was the only, was the kind of uniform method of death penalty in France, unless you were, I think, for non-civilian uh, crimes, then it could have been by firing squad, but for everything else, it was, it was the guillotine right up until the, the end. So how does this, this exhibition fit in with contemporary France and the, and the way it views its criminal justice system? Well, I mean, the guillotine may seem, in a sense, anachronistic, but the way that it's put on in the exhibition is particularly pertinent for, the, for, for our times. There's big debate in France at the moment about the criminal justice system, about the penitentiary system, about the hugely overcrowded, underfunded prison system, reoffending rates, police powers, all that kind of thing, which all tie in here. And 
uh, today, walking around the exhibition, I spoke to one woman who was, in general, she was impressed by the quality of the things there, and it made her think about everything. But she was angry. Um, she was angry about a timeline which covered the criminal justice system from the beginnings, well, from the revolution until it stopped in 1981. And she said to me, well, I think this is a massive shame. The situation in France and our prisons at the moment is, is shocking, is lamentable. Um, 30 years have passed since then, and why haven't they dealt with that? Uh, get the feeling that you know, president after president is sweeping that under the carpet. Lizzie Davis. Now David Smith reports from Johannesburg on South Africa's preparations for this summer's World Cup. African football fans are eagerly awaiting the Football World Cup, arriving on their continent for the first time. Africa in general, so often seen through the prism of war and famine, will get to show the world a different face. South Africa, in particular, has not enjoyed such a moment in the sun since the transition from apartheid to multiracial democracy in 1994. With just three months until kick-off, I was recently on a tour of South Africa's nine host cities to see the World Cup stadiums. I was among journalists accompanying Jerome Valky, the Secretary General of FIFA, who awarded the country eight out of ten for readiness. We have many, many things to do, many, many small things to do, but people are expecting, they are expecting something which is perfect. And it would be a mistake from South Africa and from our side to say, no, because it's in Africa, we can be at 75% or 80%. Africa can offer something where you feel definitely inside that something is happening and you fall in love with Africa. We're at the Moses Mabida Stadium in Durban, surely one of the most spectacular stadiums in the world, beneath a grand arch that even has a bungee swing. It somewhat overshadows the nearby rugby stadium, and indeed this is a country with a proud rugby history. But now, it's football's turn. It's the dream of one man in particular, Danny Jordan, who's been working to bring the World Cup to Africa for 16 years. Soon we will know if all his promises can be fulfilled. Well, it's been quite a journey, you know, and, and over that period of time, it was uh, a roller coaster ride. Of course, we were in a good position in the 2006 bid. Our hopes were dashed. And on the 15th of May, I think a long-held dream that one day the World Cup will be on African soil became a reality. And even a, a person like Nelson Mandela shed a tear on that day and said... I feel like a young man. And to stand here today, a country that was ravaged by apartheid wars, then I can already see the impact that this World Cup will have uh, on our country and, and, and on our nation. And do you feel some of the foreign criticism is too harsh? There has not been an organizing committee without criticism ever. I worked with the, the Japanese and the Koreans. I was there in 2001. I was in France in 1997 and 1998. Uh, I was there in Germany in 2005 and 2006. And looking at where we are, I'm comfortable. Four of our stadiums are going to be ranked amongst the best in the world. Cape Town is South Africa's most popular tourist destination and a big draw for people from Britain. They relish the beaches, the view from Table Mountain and the tours of the nearby wine country. 
and on the 18th of June they can watch England take on Algeria here. But England's army of football fans have not always been the most amenable guests. Helen Zilli, the Premier of Western Cape Province. Well, you know, we all have this wonderful love-hate relationship with England. England is the foremost footballing nation in the world, so it also has to be the foremost footballing target in the world. Everyone jokes that the jail we built underneath the stadium is for the English fans who have a few too many beers and things. But, of course, a World Cup wouldn't be the same without England. And will there be enough uh, hotel rooms for England fans and will the transport be up to scratch for them? Even compared to their famous tube system, they will love the new public transport system we're putting in place here. Obviously, uh, much gets written about South Africa in terms of violent crime. I mean, do you foresee that being an issue if um, an England fan takes a wrong turning and ends up in Cape Flats or Kailicha? If people are sensible in Cape Town, Cape Town is a safe and inner city, which is where all the fans are going to be, comparably to any other city in the world. Cape Town is as safe. David Smith reporting. Ben Green and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening.